Bot Fraud, The New York Tech Scene, Rethink DB and Open Source, and many other topics are discussed on today's episode. Two of the most popular guests are returning to the show to explore a variety of topics. We're trying a new format in today's episode. The two guests are Ben Halpern and Haseeb Qureshi. Ben is the creator of The Practical Dev, which is a massively popular Twitter account and blog. You may recognize it from its parody O'Reilly book covers that have gone viral. And Haseeb Qureshi is an engineer at Airbnb. He's a blogger who is well-known for his writings on salary negotiation and coding boot camps. Uh, Haseeb is an old friend. We played poker together online many years ago. Uh, we were competitors, rivals, now we are allies, and um, frequent sparring partners and dinnertime conversation. This episode was an experiment. I enjoyed it a lot, but please let me know what you think. Um, if you don't like the topic roundtable format, let me know. If you do like it, let me know. Uh, in any case, I'm sure this won't be the last you will hear from Haseeb and Ben. So, welcome to Software Engineering Daily, Haseeb and Ben. Uh, we have Ben Halpern of The Practical Dev and Haseeb Qureshi, who has been on several shows prior. And on this episode, we're going to be doing something slightly different. We usually have a extremely focused topic with something relating to engineering, and the topics that we will discuss today do relate to engineering, but it's going to be more of a roundtable discussion. We're going to talk about several things uh, with a little more of a conversational atmosphere. And uh, just to give people an introduction, why don't, why don't each of you explain what you're working on today? Because both, both of you have been prior guests that uh, listeners have actually uh, explicitly said, oh, I really like the show with Ben. I really like the show with Haseeb. Um, so starting with Ben, Ben, you are working on the practical dev, as well as some other uh, things. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that? What 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 is the what is the practical dev for yeah, this? Yeah, so the now? practical dev is a. It started out as a Twitter account uh, where I talked about programming concepts, uh, commentaries, a lot of news. Uh, I really it really got big when I started making jokes and injecting a lot more of my personality into it. And uh, the most popular thing are these O'Reilly parody book covers, which people have probably seen around the internet a little bit. And um, it's sort of evolving, uh, as I always sort of intended it to be uh, a little bit more. Um, we have a, uh, uh, a website called dev.to, we pronounce it dev2, and uh, it's a platform for programmers to share ideas and to talk about programming, and there's other things on the internet, other places to do that, but we're trying to uh, pull it all together in a really interesting way, in, in the way I... Uh, I envisioned it and try to solve some problems that some of the other platforms don't really get to. Medium for engineers. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it looks more like medium for engineers now because it's easier to build something that looks like medium before you achieve like full-on network effects. But uh, I think uh, the evolution, it will probably end up looking less like medium. Maybe phys like design-wise, it still might look like medium, but I think there's uh, a little more to it in the end. But uh, We'll see. Um, I have a co-founder. Oh. Now, what is so, so? So, what is incredible about the practical dev? And um, this is not exactly yep. dev two, but 
the, uh, the practical dev, your your Twitter account, when I see a tweet from you, it's typically been retweeted by like 2,000 or 15,000 people. You have massive Twitter followings. What percentage of that do you think is bots? Oh, that's, that, uh, <laughs> that's a really interesting question, um, really, because I've been... Uh, um, I don't think a big percentage is bots because I pay a lot of attention to what's going on. So, uh, I mean, I think there are some bots, mm. but like, I think the percentage is pretty low because of the other engagement metrics and, and the general like, uh, engagement and stuff that, but that's really interesting because, uh, I basically spent the last week writing an article about how much of the discourse on the election, I think is bots. And we hadn't, I don't think I talked to you at all about that. Um, yeah, it's like coming from Russia, uh, well, right? I don't know. I I get into this in the piece, so like, no. Did you see these geo maps? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's these geo maps where it's like, it's like what percentage of the Twitter discussion about the election is is coming from Russia? It's like, a yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think it's it gets really complicated, but uh, yeah, I, I actually um, I don't really foray with my own writing into politics a lot, but like the technical uh aspects here are pretty interesting and uh uh by the time this recording comes out i'll probably have published this this article i'm working on but uh it's like five thousand words and i'm going into like all my thoughts about how much i think is automated on the internet and how it's like so much more than people think um but oh, uh, oh yeah yeah and, and in this crowd it really seems obvious but i think when i talk to most people it seems counterintuitive um and even the articles even the articles well, that sort of like get into it, like they tend to pick on what seems like it's an obvious bot. But it's, if you look at the technology out there right now in terms of uh, like the way bots can speak to humans, uh, none of these evaluations really do justice to how unlikely it is that we know something is a bot for sure. Oh, that's right. And I'm actually about to do a series of shows on this. You may have seen my tweets recently about how much I've been wanting to do shows about ad fraud and yeah. ad tech. But a lot of these these uh, these bot accounts on the internet are connected to ad fraud. So basically, if you're a, some hacker that wants to make uh, that that wants to get paid off of uh, ad fraud, part of that. Uh, pro- technical process is making fake accounts that are yep. convincing. So th- part of the convincing behavior that you have to do to create a convincing account is doing stuff like randomly retweeting something that you know uh, a bot detector wouldn't think of as suspicious. So if some bot retweets the practical dev, you know that looks like legitimate behavior because how would that be connected to? Uh, how, how would that be driven by malicious uh, ad fraud type of behavior? Uh, but in fact, it is to seem more legitimate to pass the. Oh same yeah, test. and there's been a lot of talk about this with uh, you know because people buy Facebook likes like directly through Facebook they advertise and then they get Facebook likes. Oh yeah, have you seen the Veritasium uh, video? I think so uh, if I haven't seen that specifically, I've certainly seen um, the uh, read a bit about it, and it's pretty uh, it's pretty outrageous how. How much we just like we really—it's hard to pin down what the hell is happening on the internet. It's—it's it's hard to even—it's hard to even <laughs> determine what is automated and what's not because 
if I if I go to uh, if I go to Buffer and I schedule some tweets over a few of my accounts for later in the week because I just know I'm going to want to tweet about this thing in in five days. That's like legitimate behavior that's expected. There's lots of these clients that legitimately offer this as a service, but that's also like bot activity essentially, and they call it automation uh, to sell the product. And they uh, and it, it's just kind of a matter of scale. It's like if I do this at a reasonable scale, nobody really cares. But if I do the exact same thing more times, uh, it's a big deal, and that's where the whole that's kind of where the election stuff comes in like the day after the the debates when the hashtag uh uh trump won was was the top trending thing it was it was like impossible to to not think that bots had a huge role in that and and then that also had a huge role in the rest of the discourse since um and uh and that's just like network technology it's it's so different from the expectations and uh um, yeah, uh, we've gotten a little off track, uh, and to just yeah, yeah, there's no but, track. Well, actually, so so let me let me, let me just jump yep. in because like I, I don't know too much about ad fraud or like how much Russian uh, chatbot or not chatbot, sorry, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, bot botnets have been contributing to like I don't know Trump supposedly winning certain debates or not. But <laughs> so uh, the the team that I'm on at Airbnb is the risk team. So basically, we deal with a lot of anti fraud uh, on on the scale of Airbnb. Um, and what's really been fascinating to me, because like this is my first time kind of taking a foray into this world. And what's fascinating to me is like how intrinsically hard of a problem it is to, to like differentiate between good behavior and bad behavior, especially because like the, just like the, 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 the circle of people, especially in like Eastern Europe, China, uh, a lot of, a lot of generally poorer countries are you, you would think that like what they're doing is essentially just you know really straightforward like okay let's just create a bunch of accounts and then like brute force things but they're extremely sophisticated you know things that like you would think could only be done out of like a university lab uh, are being done just by just random Chinese fraudsters uh, to try to like get twenty cents on on you know stealing twenty cents off of Airbnb repeatedly you know or from Facebook or or, or Google um, and it's really scary that. It does seem like there's a there's only like so much time. It, it seems to me in my mind there's only so much time where like the dimensionality of data and like the difficulty of recreating human behavior is hard enough that we can still solve these problems. But I'm right. really concerned that like in 15 years time, when it becomes easier and easier to, for example, trick OCR. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with OCR, but it's like you know, let's say I'm paying for something with a credit card. If uh, if a website thinks that my credit card is potentially not mine, what they might do is force me to take a, a photograph of it. And so, you know, these photographs can like read the credit card number and see, okay, you know, this doesn't look like it's actually the real credit card. Optical character recognition. Yes. And um, so this is this is actually like, you know, this is a very common friction that websites will throw at you, but it's becoming easier and easier to beat it, right? Like you can just, you can Photoshop things. Uh, you know, Photoshopping is very manual right now, but there are a lot of ways that you can actually automate. This. You can you can even offload it to Turks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was I remember reading this paper about uh, like this underground industry. I think it was in China or maybe it was in India, where they would basically pay like fraudsters would pay people to solve captchas, and the going rate was about seven cents a captcha or something like that. It was like a really small amount, uh, and if you're running like a fraud ring, this is. This is exactly what you do. Like, the, uh, captures cannot beat you if the thing you're trying to defraud is worth more than seven cents in expected value. 
So uh, yeah, it's it's like a crazy economy behind all this. Yeah, stuff. and a lot of it it integrates pretty well just into the software you want. So a lot of it's like let's have a bot try to break this captcha and fall back to the human if necessary, and it it winds up being a pretty uh, pretty simple process where you like add a library to your application and all of a sudden you can break captures with extreme confidence as long as you're willing to pay like up to one cent on average uh and it's the whole it scales so much faster than human behavior does like humans are pretty capped on everything they can do but the scale of the internet and the scale of computation is like theoretically limitless and uh and it takes a long time to to you until you get general uh, limitless activity in terms of AI, obviously, but the uh, the focused initiatives are so within the reach of of bad user bad actors right now that it's uh, it's hard to not think of this as a current economic and political situation and not something in the future. Right, right, and so what Hasib said is something that I have been thinking about for a while, where. So, for example, you have these bots that are trying to replicate human behavior, and then you have these services, like um, someone from Are You a Human is coming on the show soon. We've had Shape Security on the show. These are companies that have products that uh, the offering is, if if you've got some service where you need to detect if you have a human uh, on the browser or not, that uh, they'll do that verification for you, and they do stuff called fingerprinting, where they say, "Okay, we've tracked this user's behavior, and we can, with ninety x percent accuracy, we can say whether it's a bot or a human." And I don't understand how they can say that because, and I'm I'm definitely going to ask uh, Ben from Are You Human about that. I'm sure he'll have some very good answers, but it seems like, you know, if let's say I had a piece of malware on my computer right now. It could just record everything that I'm doing. I'm doing Skype calls. I'm setting up Google Docs. I'm sending emails and stuff. You could just make a bot that records everything I do and then copies it. And then it uh, it starts to do things that are very similar to that. And then it goes and clicks on ads. So I, I think the obvious – so there, there are multiple levels to this, right? So I think the first level is, you know, in the ideal case, if let's say Google or Facebook is doing no sophisticated analysis of like my normal behavior, right? It's not doing any anomaly detection in terms of where my mouse is moving, how long I take to click between links. Then of course, what I'm going to want to do is just use. Uh, I'm just going to want to like make command line requests to like try to, uh, you know, just have this giant botnet just all be making these requests to like click on this ad, right? And of course, Facebook is smart enough to be like, okay, I want to know that you actually came from a browser. I want to know that you actually, you know, went through all my JavaScript, that you just took this amount of time. Um, like that, that is like the first step. The, it, it's a lot more difficult to like have to run a headless browser. Like it's a lot slower and you can't really automate it because it's pretty expensive for a machine to like actually be running a browser and simulating the mouse movements of a human being. Like it just slows you down a lot, right? If, if Facebook is saying, I want to know you spent at least three seconds like looking at the page and trying to find the link before you clicked on it, that slows down a botnet by an order of magnitude and how quickly they can execute something. Now that's not a hard stop, right? And so for now it's pretty good because usually what happens with like the way that fraud rings work is that they don't actually care whether it's Facebook or Google or Yahoo or Airbnb or whatever, right? Like they're all they're thinking about is how can I make the most money fastest? 
So essentially, the, the task of Facebook and Google and all these other companies right now is we need to be the most expensive company to defraud per second. And as long as someone else is worse than us, they will just go there. Right? They will concentrate their efforts on the easiest fish in the pool. Now, eventually, the, the, you know, the floor is going to raise such that everybody's pretty good. And then it's going to be like, okay, well, crap, we, we're going to have to up our game. I suspect that it's going to be some uh, – I mean, botnets are the hardest thing to stop. But some kind of like proof of work uh, that's just like baked into the way that you make requests on the internet is eventually going to have to happen. Right, Where like mm. you know, your computer just has to like take up a ton of memory and computation to make one request such that it's just sort of a natural rate limit beyond just like you have to move your mouse around and like click on stuff and, and kind of look like a human being. Uh, but like with, with a large enough botnet, I think the only answer is like we have to start either breaking up these botnets or have better detection for these kind of schemes because there's almost nothing you can do to stop somebody who has control of a million machines and can make them all simulate human behavior. Yeah, and, and everything you described there was also speaking from the incentive of the company itself in order to not lose money so that uh, the botnets don't affect their revenue. But there's, there are more people at play here than the company itself. So like Google's incentives are not necessarily the same as their end users, and Twitter's incentives are not necessarily to make sure that there's a fair election or that people are not deceived in any way. Their, their incentives really revolve around their own click-through rates and and uh, and things like that. Like uh, when Instagram purged their uh, their site of a lot of like obvious bot accounts, um, the Instagram, I believe the Instagram profile itself lost 18 million followers. And uh, some... <laughs> Some famous celebrities lost a lot of followers too. Akon lost more than half of his followers mm. that day, um, and uh, yeah, that that seems more true of Instagram and Twitter than it does for like Facebook or Google. yeah, it does. But uh, and it doesn't really matter to Instagram and Twitter on a for their own purposes whether there's all these bots because it doesn't really affect the, their own revenue or typically like other users as long as they sort of stay out of the way, um, but. I mean, I do pay attention to the practical dev gets probably five or six uh, mentions mentions a day from bots, uh, almost always in the porn space. Um, and uh, it's, I don't know, like, if it's so blatantly obvious that anything more sophisticated than that would be, go completely unnoticed. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of different use cases besides porn for, uh, for, for automating activity that really doesn't rip off the the company like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but all but totally rips off a lot of their users without them even noticing, or at least mm-hmm. or at least extracts value. Yeah, from I will them. say it's it's good. Yeah, it's good to finally have some positivity on Twitter. That I feel like that's a that's a plus where people are telling me I'm sexy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so adjacent topic. Um, you know, I, I want to cover ad fraud in more detail, and uh, I'm going to do that in future episodes. But uh, one thing I have had debates with people recently is this chatbot stuff. Um, this is not necessarily talking about Twitter bots or or Facebook bots, more the bots in the chat interface, whether we're talking about Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or SMS messages. And we've obviously seen a ton of businesses recently around chatbots. So I guess I'm curious how you you both see chatbots 
developing and if this is a space that actually matters have you used chatbots as an engineer like there's this whole thing about chat ops like oh we're going to move everything into slack where you can just spin up a server with slack and you can do automated testing you have your ci cd stuff plugged into slack and we want bots doing everything is this stuff overhyped or underhyped uh my so i so we use uh, similar chat op stuff. As, as an engineer, I think bots are really, really useful just for automating a lot of uh, engineering-related tasks. Um, I think for, in, in, in the general case, so outside of specifically, you know, people working in tech or people working in pretty technical areas, uh, I would say that I think they're largely overhyped. That's not to say that I don't think they, you know, there is a space for the whole idea of a conversational UI and there are places where it works really well. I think, I remember reading an article about WeChat and WeChat is sort of like the, the paradigmatic case where conversational UI really, really won. And it's it's kind of like, I think it's a thing that everyone's looking to is like, oh, this is the proof that, you know, conversational UI is going to be a thing. Uh, and I think if you, if you look closely at the details, it's more a function of the way that WeChat works and the way that it's kind of... Um, the way that things have kind of developed very idiosyncratically in China and in the, the markets where WeChat is winning, uh, then it is that like intrinsically, this is the best way to solve a problem or to interact with a product. Uh, I'm, I'm very skeptical that it, like if you want a pizza, the easiest way for you to get that pizza is going to be to like get on Facebook Messenger and then message a pizza bot and tell it like, I want pepperoni and then I want this and here's my, you know, um, like I that, that doesn't seem to me like the ideal experience for most things that I can that I can think of. Uh, yeah, uh, I I totally agree. Um, this topic of chatbots is closer to me now than it ever has before because uh, the other the other thing I do besides the practical dev is I work for a startup uh, called Argo, and uh, we've been through a few iterations in terms of our exact business model, but the tech's been uh, similar all along. But we are currently in. Uh, we're currently developing communication technology for companies to talk to their customers uh, with the idea that they can do sort of one-to-many communication with their agents handling a lot more work than they ordinarily would be able to, so human-to-human communication. But it's it's backed up by, by chatbots depending on a confidence interval, so the idea is that it's people talking to people, but uh, the, the simplest stuff can be done by chatbots, and we will progressively become... Uh, better at that so that you're always talking to a human if it's a human need and you're always talking to a chatbot if it's a bot need and it's kind of like the only way we've like we see a lot of value in this because we uh, we want companies to be able to just answer text messages basically the way you would hope a company could if you needed to talk to them in any way and this is our kind of interpretation on the problem because it's so different from kind of from the way people talk about chatbots normally uh, in the in the basic discourse about how they will like people have a hard time finding true use cases because they're good at very specific tasks and they break down really easily. Um, I think VCs spend a lot of time talking about them on podcasts uh, in really. In really, <laughs> yes, in, and that's kind of the most frustrating thing. It's that they're sort of talking about some arbitrary future that we might ever we might get to and we might not to get to, and they're backing fifteen companies, one of which will succeed in doing anything useful. 
And there's a huge, there's a real tragedy that comments on the end user where they get all these crappy chatbots like popping up, and they they develop uh, a lack of trust in the idea of chatbots. And I think, yeah, but, well, so I I I I think um, I have a slightly different perspective because I think that the way the direction we're going is more chatbots are the bridge. Uh, between where we are now and the pervasive voice interface, whether that voice interface is coming from AirPods or Alexa or Google Home or some other uh, ephemeral uh, AI thing. And um, for one, the the technology that transcribes your voice is going to get really good, and then you're essentially, like the chatbot just becomes something that's responding to a voice interface, and the but the other thing is that um, the reason you see VCs investing in all these very domain specific bots, for example, that like the uh, the 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 perfect example of this I think of is this bot. Um, it's like a scheduling bot. Uh, X.ai, I think, is what it is, and uh, there was a great this week in startups episode about this. But basically, all it does is it. You know, if you if you're in a thing where you're you're scheduling with somebody in an email, you can just say, uh, okay, hey, um, you know, cc ccx.ai um, set up time for coffee with me and somebody else because I don't know if you if you've ever done this kind of calendaring stuff, but there's always edge cases. It always takes up like two or three more emails than you feel like it should, and this is just this one specific domain where it's really useful to have. A bot, or like Ben, like you said, uh, if the bot can't handle the scheduling, then it kicks off the, uh, excuse me, it kicks off the the scheduling process to somebody who is in the Philippines somewhere. So there is like this potential for the human in the loop. But where I'm going with this is the domain specific thing. You're gonna have all these domain specific bots, and then you're these are all gonna be connected to centralized interfaces like. Google Home or Google Assistant, whatever it is, uh, like you know, you saw the Google Assistant announcement. They have all these partners. The reason they have all these partners is because if you you wanted to be able to just ask one query to Google Home or Google Assistant or whatever you call it, and that thing figures out how to delegate queries to the domain specific uh, services. So you get like a fan out sort of thing. That's why you see investments in all these domain specific chatbots because each one of these domains takes a lot of uh, domain-specific knowledge to figure out how to implement that bot, but once you've got that problem tackled, it's easier to to sync that inter to figure out how to sync that interface into other uh, voice interfaces. That's my thesis, at least. Uh, yeah, I I think. Go, sorry, go ahead, Ben. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that general uh, that general idea, but uh, it, it's it's hard to tell. Uh, the timing matters, like. We, we're talking a lot about chatbots, and the question is not re whether this kind of will eventually lead to anything, but whether the current hype, whether the, whether the discussions really make any sense on the current trajectory we're on in terms of this technology versus other technology that might also win out. And, um, and I don't know, it's like uh, there's a lot of gold rush into this space, uh, and it, it's not clear that it's justified, <laughs> but it's also like... What is clear is that a lot of the a lot of the discussion does not inherently justify any of it. Um, the uh, it might be so 
such a gold mine that it is justifiable, but I don't see the arguments actually being uh, making making the case in and of themselves. Um, and it's uh, like the underlying fundamentals of the technology are really fascinating and incredible, but they don't really even get a lot of attention compared to just like what random bots are popping up to solve a problem in a really uh, unfinished sort of way. Uh, I don't know, as far as just pure interfaces, it, it is quite interesting, but uh, I don't know if the if building a chatbot now solves those future problems that will, that, uh, I don't know, it's, uh, it's good. I, I have more questions and answers on this topic in, in the... Uh, in the abstract, but it's uh, it's certainly it's certainly hard to not talk about. I think I mean I think one of the problems that's that's really really tough with chatbots is trust, because intrinsically with a chatbot, right? Like a chatbot cannot give you a giant menu or like a you know a, you know this, this huge selection of things. By its nature, it's because it's constrained by the idea of a conversation, right? Like. You're not going to read me a list of like 20 Google results and I pick the best one. So like something like like picking a restaurant to go to, right? This is an example of a pretty high dimensional problem where I care about a lot of things and my preferences are really subtle and I am not even very good at communicating them to you, you know? And so, chat, you know, one way chatbots are limited by our communication skills, but they're also limited by... Uh, our trust in that, like, you know, if, if I tell the Yelp bot, hey, Yelp, I'm hungry, I want something, you know, that's close and good and cheap, and it gives me McDonald's or something, and, or let's just say it gives me, like, some restaurant I don't even know, uh, I don't think I'm going to trust that, like, its algorithm is so good that I should just go to that restaurant, you know? Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm just like, okay, great, I'll keep that in mind, but I'm going to actually go on Yelp and actually look through the restaurants and, like, make the decision that I feel confident in. And so I feel like there's... Uh, for for a lot of really really well defined problems such as scheduling, yeah, I can trust that X.AI is going to figure that out. You know, it's a pretty simple problem domain. Uh, just so, you know, same thing. I would I would if I was you know outsourcing this to somebody in the Philippines, I wouldn't be that worried that they wouldn't be able to figure it out, uh, provided they had you know sufficient language skills. But for something you know really complicated like a, just a restaurant or like what blog I'm going to read or I don't know something along those lines. What's the most important piece of news today? Um, like, I kind of feel like I don't trust a bot to do sufficient curation uh, because I also don't think it's going to get sufficient input on a day-to-day basis about how I'm feeling or what I want or what my preferences intrinsically are. Maybe that changes over time, but I feel like we're many iteration cycles away from that. So I, I kind of agree with you, Ben, that I think right now is sort of the gold rush phase, uh, but you know, it, it, the gold is very deep in the ground right now. And I think it's probably going to be a while until we get to actually really, really good, smooth user experiences and also have users trust these bots. Right now, I think they're more fanciful and kind of interesting, except where they solve really simple problems. Uh, yeah, and the, the navigation with a bot is, is just, it's a, it's a black box. There's not really much you can do if it doesn't give you a good experience. Uh, a lot of our traditional sort of networking technology information things, you know, websites, uh, they can be terrible and you can still get your information out of them. Uh, an unsophisticated chatbot is really useless, whereas an unsophisticated website is, can be very useful. Um, and it's not that the like interface isn't there, uh, it's just it sort of needs time and needs use cases and these use cases evolve at, at sort of the human scale. Like it takes, you can't just like quickly iterate on something without months of just finding out if the humans at the end of it like like it over time 
you can't simulate like two years with my Amazon Echo to see if I still like it without actually get, putting it out there for two years. Um, and uh, so it's it's kind of uh, yeah, it's a it's an evolution. Uh, like the the technology is capable of making a website good like it they are now compared to 20 years ago we're sort of already there a lot of the patterns for design and stuff were technically possible we just hadn't worked out what people actually like to do on the internet for a long time and uh and we got we went through a lot of phases uh a lot of the chatbot stuff right now really looks like a flash intro page of of websites in in that like it's (laughs) the technology is really fascinating like i can't believe we can do this but damn if we don't like i oh my god like you see yeah you, you see current technologies that are really fascinating but they really are the the flash intro pages of uh it's the geo yeah, of the of the day and i remember when i was younger uh i i was pretty interested in flash intro pages when they first came out it pretty much blew my mind but i can never find a useful yeah. reason to to put them on my website and now if you find a website that still has one of those it's like the worst experience you could possibly imagine this rethink db shutting down this week sparked some discussions about open source um, particularly open source business models for those who don't know rethink db is a open source database that had some it, it had a business attached to it um, and I think this also this news was uh, timely in the sense that there's also this Docker discussion going on. I don't know how how familiar either of you are with this, but Docker, the company, um, kind of might be having some issues. Well, I don't know if the company itself is having issues, but the business model is unclear with uh, Docker, despite the billion dollar valuation. And there has been grumblings in the community because Docker, the company, led this effort to bake in uh, support for Docker's orchestration engine, the Docker Swarm, which the community responded to by essentially saying, like, well, maybe we should fork this thing. And now there's a lot of discussion around um, building systems that don't necessarily require Docker technology, and I think it's a, it's an, we're in an interesting phase of open source where open source business models have become the norm rather than the exception for infrastructure technologies like companies that are selling to developers rather than selling to consumers. Um, I don't know, Ben. Uh, are either of you, Ben? What are your thoughts on the Rethink DB? Oh stuff? well, my personal thoughts on the Rethink DB stuff is, uh, is a bit of. Like, if I'm going to boil it down to my, uh, how I look at it is uh, a bit of frustration because I just chose to go with RethinkDB, like, last week. Uh, oh, wow. As the core infrastructure for, as, a, as the database <laughs> for the Argo system, and uh, it's not the end of the world if we don't go with it, but, it you know, it just, like, I've I'd, I'd done a lot of research, I was really excited about its its features, I thought that it... It really made sense for our application, given uh, all the needs. And then I just like what 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 made you decide that? Uh, well, the RethinkDB is really built around. It's a pretty simple database, sort of built around its functionality for uh, for real time everything. And uh, 
since our whole application is built around real-time messaging and uh, and is structured uh, to receive messages and update the interface with uh, through React and Redux, it just sort of seemed like a like there were other things we could do, but it seemed like a really nice pattern for the future if we could if we could simply send messages directly down to the interface from the database depending on what happened. Uh, it seemed like a wonderful pattern for us, but the the nice thing is we didn't even need to do all that right away because the uh, the applic uh, the database uh, handles a lot of basic uh, querying right out of the gate, and we don't really need uh, we don't really need to deal with huge amounts of data at least at first because some of our third party uh, uh, software actually stores most of the data that we don't actually and need right away in our in our current phase we're pretty early uh, and it just seemed like a the future made sense for this project it really like fit the the personality mm -hmm. of our application and um, and that was wonderful and we and it had some decent support enough enough use uh, and uh, and the other options were um, just other databases I've been familiar with and rethink. Are there other databases that support? Because my understanding is RethinkDB, the the big appeal of it is it does this yeah. push stuff that you're talking about. Like you can make RethinkDB push you data yeah. rather than having to pull data and from I, the database. I don't know the entire landscape. I think there probably is. But the exciting part was that Rethink just seemed like a great option. It didn't really matter if there's 10 others because uh, the because the the way Rethink was described, the amount of documentation, the amount of seeming support from a big company that has lots of financing was certainly part of it like it seemed like if there was issues they'd iterate pretty quickly on them uh and and the uh i just sort of liked the story more than i liked the story for some other databases we might go with uh i mean i would just kind of choose postgres for we could just go with postgres for a lot of our current uh needs but it seemed really exciting that rethink was gonna offer us some some interesting uh some some interesting future possibilities that we just wouldn't get from something else and uh and so the news that it's the company is shutting down i'm still i still think we'll probably if everything goes well go with the technology because obviously uh non non-venture funded open source is still totally viable but it really like slows down our whole effort yeah. and i really have to wait and see and just read a lot about who's gonna be taking over maybe i'll help myself if i can but it's uh mm. it's uh it's just like it's really out there it's it's such a weird problem for this industry it really you can't really like compare it to a lot of other things well it you know especially especially because if you i mean my sense was like oh rethink db is doing just fine it's a y combinator company y combinator is a kingmaker there's no way this company can fail. Uh, everything's fine. Been and then you get this announcement. It's like, oh, okay. Well, um, I don't know. I uh, kind of it, it was shocking for me. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing is that, um, but uh, the scale of what failure is for a venture-backed company like that, especially with founders who want to uh, who want to run a company like that, is that failure doesn't necessarily mean um, like ongoing success and like and and revenue it sometimes like failure can mean just like we didn't 10x our our value in two years like the the 
the conversation of what failures really matters because, uh, for example, uh, I said I'm working for this sort of newer startup, Argo, but it's actually sort of a pivot of something else that was kind of working, but we, based on the structure of our equity, we had to grow faster and bigger and we had to change. And I think we're ex working on a more exciting thing. I'm glad we did everything that way, but, but it, it, it was, it manifested from the situation, not from the like inherent economics. Um, uh, there's a lot of perverse incentives here for the company, the, uh, the, the, for the, the people funding it. Um, and, uh, and it's hard to say like that they just failed, like you'd expect a company to fail because, uh, it's, it might be a lot more about their growth rate than their short-term, long-term expectations, things like that. I mean, I think it's also true that just, you know, data, the database, I don't know a lot about Rethink TV or, or even about this area, so I'm kind of speaking a little bit out of turn here, but it, it doesn't come as that much of a surprise to me, even if Rethink TV is one of the one of the many darlings of Hacker News, that, you know, database companies are hard. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to have uptake among developers, but it's very hard to actually make a lot of money from enterprise contracts. I think, you know, MongoDB is, is valued, what, somewhere like a billion dollars? Um... But I don't. I don't actually know. Does anyone know like other database companies that have been really successful? I mean, obviously, aside recently, from Oracle. Uh, I mean, yeah. Well, there's Vault DB, which is that's a closed source. There's MemSQL. I think MemSQL is quite a MemSQL too. Company. Yeah, that's true. But those are both closed source. Um, yeah, and and it, there's so much. There's so much more involved. It's really hard to run a company. Uh, there's. It's really difficult. There's. It's so complicated. And I think it's the kind of situation that really only goes down in the middle of the tech industry, like in Silicon Valley. It's a really Silicon Valley kind of story. These uh, these companies that don't really have a solid uh, model for for profitability uh, can last a long time based on exciting technology, and uh, and sometimes the sometimes it doesn't work out, and a lot of people get affected, and it's it's a really uh, it's it's really fa fascinating. Like we take for granted how much, how many human factors are involved, how much can go wrong, uh, how much one random, one random guy removing left pad from the npm can can affect right. can affect the whole industry. And uh, we sort of you look at it and it's sort of like counterintuitive. And then you get involved in the industry and it all sort of makes sense. But then one of these things happens and you get the idea that like maybe this was. Maybe it was a little counterintuitive to put our faith in this in the first place, and uh, mm. and it's just kind of like how software is built these days. It's like is like risk management between all these different companies you rely on. Mm. Now, speaking of that risk management, and Ben speaking about what you were talking about with your companies pivoting based upon the financing structure. Um, I, I've been thinking about this topic a lot, uh, this narrative around, you know, you accept VC and it changes your, or you accept any kind of funding, it changes what your goals have to be as a business. Uh, there was this really interesting article that came out this week about MailChimp that was basically described MailChimp as a company that never accepted funding. They had a very slow growth rate, but now it's 700 million dollar company, something like that. Um, and then, you know, there's also the classic story of Basecamp. David Heinemeier Hansen has written nonstop about 
how taking funding is frequently a mistake. It's frequently herd mentality based. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at the same time, not to knock Basecamp, but it's kind of been displaced as a popular project management tool by things like Slack, perhaps Trello, um, these other technologies that have accepted funding. I don't want to say that that's a causal thing, but obviously once you have a certain flywheel spinning, there was a time when Basecamp was really popular. Perhaps if they would have raised money, maybe they could have gone faster. Um, and so so I think this is this is interesting because in, in the Valley... You you know I've I've been here for like three or four weeks at this point, but you know I've been talking to people from Silicon Valley for a long time, and even people in Seattle and Ben, you could tell me whether it's the case in New York, but it really is like the the norm to raise money, and it's not really questioned as much. It's basically like when you get to a certain point, you should raise you should raise money because it can accelerate your growth rate so much. Is that can we question that at this point? Like uh, infrastructure is so cheap. People can work remotely. Um, I'm wondering if there are some fundamental aspects around this money-raising flywheel architecture uh, that we have. Maybe we should be rethinking with the norms of our business. Yeah, so from my perspective, I, I think I have a lot to say on this subject because I work for... Uh, I'm the co-founder of Argo, um, I, but I'm sort of the... Uh, I didn't start out from a garage or anything. I came to New York. I uh, I was hired on to be a co-founder of a company with some funding, and we um, we sort of need funding because I can't work for free. I don't really have much money, and I'm the technical person from the start. And we've had some other technical people. We'll have more. We'll have other people we need to hire. Uh, but it's uh, the ultimate. The CEO of this company uh, is good at raising money and good at doing some of that stuff and he couldn't uh i don't know like he couldn't have he couldn't have created this company without funding um and even even from the get-go like it's really different if you are a a solo hacker versus a solo business person um but the business people are the ones starting a lot of these companies so that's kind of i think where the uh uh, the funding immediately comes in to play. I mean, under some circumstances, you might have a friend who can work for free and hack together something because they really believe in the vision and you, but it's really hard to legitimately find a good technical co-founder who will uh, work for free. That's a, that's a really tall order. Um, and I think, I think it comes down to like sort of not fighting the inertia of the project. Uh, like the practical dev has taken... Uh, no funding and it's grown pretty big like we uh we have a lot of we have a lot going for us we have we've been making partnerships with some pretty notable companies the uh i'm traveling to slovakia on behalf of the company or later this month uh and it's become pretty interesting but it's um but i might also raise some money for this project too because we either have to raise a little bit of money or focus on uh, revenue, which we just don't want to do right now because it's a distraction from some of the growth, honestly. Although we do have some revenue coming in, but it's uh, it's it's really minor, and um, we just it. So your AWS bill or your Heroku bill is getting costly enough that you're like, okay, I need to figure out a way to make this. Well, paper yeah, I mean, it is 
to some extent, yeah, like it's just coming out of my pocket, and that's that's not bad. But uh, basically, it's it's more. It's not so much the the pure infrastructure. It's the things that we want to do have some, like we're scaling pretty big. Like we have uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who know about the practical dev, and there's a lot of like support and stuff. And we need like customer support. We need we need things that take money and. Uh, and it's it's been pretty crazy. Like you sort of have to get to this point, but it's it's great that we did because we have uh, we have we're sort of a name in the industry without spending any money on it, and that means our if we raise some money, it'll be it'll be good money. Um, but it, yeah, it's really not like probably the reason. Well, for one thing, it was a side project that just kind of blossomed, uh, so it never really occurred to me to raise money for a while. Um, and also, it's just like my, in my personality to hustle things out. And uh, and if I was inherently connected with a lot of people, like if that was where I came from, I would probably raise money right away for everything because it it gives you money and mm. and and money's really helpful. And uh, it's really like and it's now, up to you whether that ruins now, your culture or anything or creates the Silicon Valley part of it. Well, my Hasib, I think you working at Airbnb probably come across plenty of things that uh you know airbnb just wouldn't have the finances to do that are nonetheless impactful enough to justify raising money for um do you think that's true is it, or, or do you have a sense that could could airbnb have have uh done just fine kind of on the back of its own uh flywheel well so i think i mean it's a complicated question because I think you know simplifying the question of should you or should you not raise money to um, like it, it, as a generic question that that can be answered for anyone is obviously not not how it works, right? It depends on the business, it depends on your needs, and depends on whether you can actually identify levers that you can pull if you had money, right? There are some levers that money cannot pull, no matter how much money you spend, and um, like I, it's there's certainly been many many times in Airbnb's past, especially for like a travel company where you need more support, you need more uh, expansion into other um, into other countries and other you know places. You need to get uh, you need to work with legislators, you need to work with regulators. Like all of that stuff is very expensive, and so it's certainly the case that Airbnb, you know, like Uber and like many of these other companies that are pretty disruptive in a lot of different markets around the world. Uh, like there's a lot of legwork that needs to get done. So now you know I'm not. Uh, you know, I don't know everything that Airbnb has spent money on, and, and certainly, like any big company, like there's there's money that that gets spent that doesn't have any direct output. But I think it really depends. I mean, one, when you raise money from a VC, and again, I take what I'm saying with a grain of salt because I'm not a founder. Um, but when you raise money from a VC, you are raising money from somebody who has, generally speaking, a very specific intention, and their intention is, I want this to be a billion dollar company. And when you take on that money, and your incentives are not aligned. Right. If you're not thinking, I want this to be a billion dollar company, then, you you know, you're sort of you're going to reap what you sow. Right. Like you should be very aware of the fact that there's going to be this intrinsic conflict. So it depends on what you actually want as a founder, as a business owner. Like, am I trying to start a billion dollar company or do I just want to, like, have a good time and, like, build this product that I love and, like, have it make pretty good money? But I, I don't really care if it's like billion dollars or bust. You know, like that's not the decision that I'm trying to make. And so I think for someone like DHH. That is genuinely not what his incentive is. And I don't think he's willing to make that kind of probabilistic trade-off where it's like, okay, there's like a 5% chance that I make a billion dollars and then an 80% chance that I walk away with nothing. He doesn't want to play those odds, right? And I think he's making a very rational decision in, in doing that. But if you're, 
if your reward function is different and you're just basically like, yeah, I, I'm actually very much like a VC personally, I would much rather have a you know 10% chance of a billion dollar business than an 80% chance of a $10 million business, uh, then yeah, you know, take VC money, find every lever that you can and uh, you know try to pull them as hard as you can. Indeed. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and uh, around the topic of lifestyle businesses, um, I just want to mention this website that I've seen recently. Maybe you guys have seen it, IndieHackers.com, which has a bunch of businesses that people have bootstrapped that are pretty interesting. Um, the guy that makes that is coming on the show sometime in the future. Um, so maybe one or two more topics. Um, one I want to discuss while we've got Ben on the line and um, Hasib and I in San Francisco is the New York versus San Francisco tech scene. Um, I had an interaction this week with uh, an old friend who lives in New York uh, who had retweeted this article by Isabella Kaminska. I don't know if you know who uh, this writer is, but she writes for uh, I think FT Financial Times and it was she she writes these articles that are consistently anti-tech and and I've seen uh, I think a, a disproportionate amount of this type of like anti-tech stuff come out of um, come out of the East Coast and the thesis of the article was that Uber is ruining the public transportation system basically by directing um, upper class and middle class traffic to private transportation systems and therefore ruining the incentives for public transportation systems to be improved. And when I looked at it, when I read the article, I was like, this is so classic. Somebody who who doesn't understand that like the, the pace of you know, Uber. Uber probably wants to break into. Uber, like I know, Uber wants to get into public transportation, and or they want, and they also want to do subsidized rides for for people who want to use Uber on their commute, maybe to a government job. Um, and what kind of irks me about this kind of thing is that you just look at the fundamentals of what Uber does, and it's like it it is driving efficiency. Uh, at a fundamental level, um, this the second order effects of that may be to, at least in the short term, perhaps in the long term, we'll see, uh, have detrimental effects on maybe certain public resources. Um, but it is this consistent drumbeat that you see from particular journalists that is anti that is ultimately anti tech. It's anti change. Um, she previously wrote this article about uh, how 21, this this uh, company that makes Bitcoin-related technology, is trying to take over the internet or something. It's just anyway. My my fundamental question here is: Is there a anti-tech streak uh, that is particularly pronounced on the East Coast, like a neo-luddite type of perspective? Ben, do you see that? Um, I don't know, Hasib. Do you see that in San Francisco? Maybe is this is this a trend that is agnostic of West Coast versus East Coast? Well, uh, you're sort of newer to San Francisco, and you were in Seattle, and uh, I don't really know a lot about San Francisco, but there there's certainly a bit of an anti-tech 
bent going on there. I, I, I hear about protests going on against the, the, the things that happen because of inequality created by the tech sector. And it is, that is, yeah, you're, you're totally spot on in terms of what the general bent is in New York. Uh, but it's, I think it's more about New York being the media center of the world as opposed to the technology center as at its core. There's a, there's a big technology sector, uh, but relative to the rest of what's going on in New York, it's more about media. And, uh, and media likes to criticize and ask questions about things like technology. Uh, it always has. I don't know if it's a specific bent that exists now. I think it's a, it's a pretty typical narrative. Um, and it's usually more about the individual writer's uh, uh, general like outlook on things and technology sort of just gets in the fray because it's it's happening um but the the media industry uh it's it's really hard to like pin down the uh how uh how specifically um how intentional some of these things are like if if you see a lot of anti-technical bent uh you i think uh on a day-to-day basis uh it's it's more about are we able to get enough stories out the door that are poignant and relate to the the concerns and the fears people have and and how can we tie that into uh current events current technical events um and yeah as a technologist uh it can be a little frustrating but uh you from my perspective uh and you really can't uh can't let that like shade your idea about what you what the perceived intentions of the writers are uh, because I feel like there's usually like a whole wedge of, uh, of, of different perspective right down the middle. Um, and as a technologist, to me, it's sometimes, uh, crazy that someone can even write about uh, a certain topic without really like any idea what the deal with it is, <laughs> uh, like the underlying technology that's, that's at play here. And, uh, and, and and how we can use that to predict what will happen in the future. Uh, but you're totally spot on about the general uh, New York scene. Um, it's not all that cool to be pro-tech the way I've ex- seen some, some discourse happening in uh, out west. But, uh, but it, it's like complicated. There's just so much moving. There's so many different politics at play. Uh, and I think sometimes people don't really put these things together and uh and notice the in, in the obvious uh the obvious like complications in these issues uh people are people complain about twitter on twitter which is like it's like uh <laughs> um it's kind of just how these things go there's it's a it's a ideological bent uh on different topics uh but it's hard to get along in New York if you uh, if you can't accept a lot of criticism into anything you're doing that could uh, that could drastically affect the world. Mm. So I, I I think I have a lot to say here. Um, I mean, the first thing is I think it's important to disambiguate tech or technology from Uber or you know any particular company, right? Like the question of whether Uber is bad for public transit in New York City 
is a totally valid question that has nothing to do with whether or not technology is a good or a bad thing. And those are like important conversations that need to be had because you never know when some, you know, like there are there are all sorts of complicated interactions that go on in the world. And I think it's totally fair game for a journalist to be asking that question, probing into it and trying to figure out like, hey, is Uber a genuinely bad thing? Uh, and if so, should how can we, you know, what's the best strategy to ameliorate that? I don't know, but I think... Uh, I'd rather have somebody asking that question than people just saying like, well, Uber's a, you know, 60 billion or whatever absurd valuation company. Uh, and so therefore, you know, it must be doing the right thing. So on the, so I think Ben is absolutely spot on in that what you're, what you're pointing out there, Jeff, is, is really the media, uh, the media industry primarily being, you know, the, the, the kingpin in New York City. Uh, and that has a lot of power and, and obviously like a lot of the liberal intelligentsia comes out of New York City, speaks in New York City, and that's where those voices tend to radiate from. Um, and I think it's more like, you know, this, this should be very unsurprising that there are a lot of people in the media who are criticizing technology for two reasons. One, the function of the media is to critique and criticize things. Like, the, the media's job is not to say, like, isn't it great that Google exists? Like, no one, no one is going to read that article, but no one needs to say that, right? Like, it actually, it, it's true, and no one needs to say it. Uh, the interesting thing that needs to be discussed are things that could potentially change the trajectory of where we're moving. And I think, you know, it, it, I would absolutely want the media to be questioning, um, you know, is the march of technology going in the right direction? Like a lot of the a lot of the arguments about privacy, about security and, and, and you know, online safety and things like that have been largely driven by the media. And I think all of us here would agree that that is a good thing. Uh, like a lot of, you know, like even the... Um, a lot of the fallout ex Snowden was largely because of the media digging into these things and attacking these things and relentlessly bringing them to the average person's attention in such a way that if, you know, the Snowden leaks had just happened and they were just on WikiLeaks and no one really delved through them and tried really hard to understand them, uh, the average person wouldn't care that all this stuff was happening. Mm. And so, like, I think when it comes to... So the first thing is that, yes, the, the media is always going to be criticizing things and I think that's, that, is, that is the correct function in a well-oiled society is that the, the media criticizes things. Uh, there are many societies where that doesn't happen, and I think that's much worse. Um, but the second thing that I want to say is that the reason why there's probably so, like you're seeing so much, or perhaps so much more critique lately, of technology coming out of, uh, you know, let's say the New York media, is because technology is so important now. Like, it, it's really a reflection of the fact that technology and the growth of technology is the, one of the most important things happening in the world right now. It's like if you, if you went back to, you know, the 1800s and you reflected on the fact that, wow, there's so much media coming out uh, criticizing industrialization. You know, wh what are these retrogressive people doing? Really, that's more, <laughs> that's more a function of the fact that, like, wow, industrialization is the most important thing happening right now. And so it should be no surprise in that you hear a lot of these voices criticizing technology, saying, hey, are we moving too fast? Are we moving in the wrong direction? Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the things coming out now about AI risk that are becoming more and more publicized in the media, uh, again, this is, this is a good thing. Because you, you, one of the things that you clearly see is that technologists and people in this industry are very myopically focused on the, the things that sort of lead to their own success, right? It's, it's like, any, uh, like, like any subgroup or any... Uh, particular trade, right? We we are not designed to see the whole picture because one, we don't live in the whole picture. We live in, you know, you and I live, at least live in uh, the Bay Area, but we also don't we don't we don't win our bread thinking about the big picture. We win our bread thinking about how do I penetrate the next old and antiquated market and make the next billion dollar company, right? Like that is the way the Silicon Valley is bred to think. 
Uh, and that that kind of thinking, you know, is, is sort of the same thing that leads to, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, at, at, you know, the kind of the kind of, uh, you know, the, I guess the example that comes to mind is when uh, Apple, you know, all the tech companies were colluding with one another to, to lower software engineering wages. And the, the net result of that was, of course, that they were able to make more money and have higher valuations. And, you know, we it, eventually someone decided, like, hey, this is not a good thing. Let's go and delve into that and break this thing apart. Uh, and the same thing going on now with a lot of privacy stuff, that if it were up to the companies, they, they wouldn't think twice about privacy. Mm. So I think, you know, it's, it's a push and pull. It's, you know, it's like this kind of uh, Hegelian thing, right? It's like the th- thesis and antithesis. And you need both to have a constructive direction for society. Okay, so I agree with that. What I am not a fan of is when I guess it's I guess everybody thinks that their own critiques are are um, are metered and maybe to to different interested parties uh, you know my my interpretation is that Isabella's article about Uber's public transportation stuff Uber's effect on public transportation is unmetered and uh, not well reasoned but you know it's it's so aggravating you know we both come from Austin. I don't know if you've been to Austin since uh, Uber has been uh, Uber and Lyft have had to pull out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but this is like the type of neo luddite uh, effect that uh, that is so. Oh, it's just so. I, to be fair, I so I don't think that's a fair characterization of what happened in Austin. I mean, you you might know more than I do, but my understanding of what happened in Austin is that. The city government basically, I mean, there was, you know, there's a large enough constituency that said we're not comfortable with Ubers pushing out the taxi industry and we want background checks and stuff like that. Like Austin would not have done what, like essentially what they were doing is they were mandating some background checks or something like that or some regular, uh, some, some kind of regulation that Uber and Lyft were not willing to comply with. But Austin did not do that because they didn't believe they would comply. Right. Like clearly it was a mistake. And in retrospect, they all like everybody in Austin government understands it was a mistake. It was a strategic and tactical error they made. It was not that they didn't want Uber and Lyft to function in Austin. Uh, not not sure if that's right. I think that actually they knew or they had an idea that this was going to be the fallout. I mean, you've seen quotes since then. I think I think there was a quote from the mayor. Where I, he I did said, read that quote. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna build our own ride-sharing service. But of course, he's gonna say that after it's over. Yeah, but after it's over, of course, you have to, you can't say like, "Well, I, sorry guys, I screwed up. Please, you know, don't elect me again." <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the okay. um, no apologies. There, there's just there's a lot of uh, problems with the overall discourse that are just obvious, uh, and and in a lot of ways, uh, the technology industry contributes to them because. Um, it's easier and easier to only get news that's tailored to your likings uh, more than ever before. Um, it's it's harder and harder to pay journalists a decent wage on average because there's so much fracturing uh, because of network technology. Uh, and so it all kind of goes together. Like uh, It's hard to find a journalist who has adequate understanding of some of the technical issues at play or able to uh, work things out because they want to pay their bloggers $15 an hour and anyone with sufficient training in the technology has better options. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a less intentional uh, issue than just the 
how sort of media sometimes goes because they have other uh, concerns in mind. Um, it's kind of amazing how much, as I was kind of saying earlier, how much the the media is also sort of ignorant to some of the technical concerns that that are at play in the election uh, because there's so much else to talk about in the pure social and pure economical and like traditional economics and uh, and even the discussion of some of this na- the, this nation's enemies in really like old-fashioned terms so people can understand them uh, the 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 general discourse is like so far off base that that uh, some of these I mean, some of it's really spot on, but if you take the average, it's really off base, obviously. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a push pull, and it's a it's a difficult economic situation to 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 make work like in the in the macro. All right. Well, uh, we've gone a little bit over. I think we've covered enough ground today. We should, uh, I guess, we should wrap up. And I want to thank you guys for coming on. If um, Depending on what the listeners think, you know, maybe we could do this again. I enjoyed talking to both of you, as always, about all the random stuff that we discussed. Um, either of you have any parting words? Uh, it was great to be on. I, uh, I've had a lot of fun, too. Uh, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, no, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you, Jeff, and uh, it was nice meeting you for the first time, Ben. I think this was fun. Absolutely. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.